This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are at the end of our box set series called Emotionally Healthy Church, but don't worry, we have a podcast coming out uh, where we're going to have a guest panel of people who are going to be trying out some of the ideas that we've been talking about during this box set series. So do look out for that in the coming summer months. We'll also be launching our emotional health course in September and uh, we'd encourage you to sign up for that as well. Now just to remind you, uh, we've talked about the idea that your spiritual health will never outpace your emotional health. But the terrible reality is that in the evangelical church in Britain, many Christians have separated emotional and spiritual health. And in fact, I can say that in my own life, I've been a Christian for 25, 30 years, and I've, I've done it myself. So you may well share that experience. And indeed, as I talk about emotional health, you may have reservations about the amount of focus we are actually placing upon emotional health and wondering whether actually this is going to distract from our spiritual health. And what I want you to understand is, is that actually nothing could be further from the truth. The two are intertwined. And uh, just by way of kind of background to this, I just want to talk about what Jesus thinks about this, because Jesus was clear that emotional and spiritual health were completely bound up together. Um, you really can't separate them. And when you do try and separate them, it creates a real mess. Now, if you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to, first of all, Matthew 23. Um, and I'm going to be reading it from the Message Translation, which is a more contemporary version of the English language um, than the more formal uh, versions like the New International Version. So we're going to turn to Matthew 23. And it says here, Now Jesus turned to address his disciples along with the crowd that had gathered with them. The religion scholars and the Pharisees are competent teachers in God's law. He affirms them. Um, he says, you won't go wrong following their teachings on Moses, but be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out into their behavior. It's all spit and polish veneer to them. Now, we need to understand the context of this. And the Pharisees took it upon themselves to protect the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, from moral decay. Um, they may have described themselves as the salt of the earth, which is a phrase that Jesus uses, preserving society from decay. But in reality, um, they may have been described more like the Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan, imposing religious laws on ordinary people and making ordinary people's lives a misery. Look at what Jesus says about them. He says, instead of you giving you God's law as food and drink by which you can banquet on God, they package it, they being the Pharisees, they package it in bundles of rules, loading you down, that's the general public, like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under these loads and wouldn't think of lifting a finger to help. Jesus is clearly enraged by these religious hypocrites so he takes them apart and if you're familiar with the, with the idea of roasting he completely roasts them in this chapter of Matthew 23. If you're thinking that Jesus is a meek and mild person then think again just read some of this. Seven times Jesus says to the Pharisees you're hopeless you religion scholars and Pharisees you're frauds or in the New International Version it says woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees you're hypocrites. And then he goes on paragraph after paragraph saying the same thing, giving them examples of how they are um, hypocritical. Um, he condemns them. He says, 
uh, verses 16 to 22, you're hopeless. What arrogant stupidity. You say, if someone makes a promise with his fingers crossed, that's nothing. But if he swears with his hand on the Bible, that's serious. What ignorance. Does the leather on the Bible carry more weight than the skin on your hands? Verses 25, 26. You're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees. You're frauds. You buff the surface of your cups and bowls so that they sparkle in the sun, while the insides are maggoty with your greed and gluttony. Stupid Pharisee, scour the insides and then the gleaming surface will mean something. Or verses 27 to 28. You're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees. You're frauds. You're like manicured grave plots. Grass clipped with the flowers bright, but six feet down it's all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. People look at you and think you're saints, but beneath the skin, you're total frauds. <sighs> Ever heard Jesus speak like that to people? Uh, it, it, he, in all the accounts of Jesus' life, there are, there is, there's no group of people that Jesus gets more angry with than the religious scholars and Pharisees. And he's angry with their hypocrisy for two reasons. Firstly, the Pharisees themselves are denying themselves the emotional health that comes from, uh, from living out the law of Moses. And secondly, and probably worse, Jesus thinks, they prevent other Jews from experiencing the same emotional health. Uh, this is what uh, Jesus says in verse 13. I've had it with you. You're hopeless, you religious scholars, you Pharisees, you're frauds. Your lives are roadblocks to God's kingdom. You refuse to enter and you won't let anyone else in either. Really strong words. Now, can anyone see the similarity between the Pharisees and the Christian church? For too long, the church in Britain has become a byword for hypocrisy. Uh, so much so that people have dismissed the Christian church as largely irrelevant to their lives. The institutional church has become known for moralizing whilst being immoral. And that's hugely damaging. The institutional church moralizes over divorce, but the divorce rate amongst Christians by the Barna Research Organization is the same as people who don't call themselves Christians. The institutional church moralizes over greed and wealth, but apparently the Church of England has financial assets of 8 billion that generates 1 billion in income a year. Uh, the institutional church moralizes over sexual immorality, but has de been dealing for a long time now with historic sexual abuse by clergy. Is it possible that Jesus would be just as mad with the hypocrisy of the church as he would be the hypocrisy, and indeed was, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? I think he would. Now, of course, most of us would share Jesus's anger at institutional hypocrisy, right? But it's not just a problem isolated to Christians. Anyone who sets themselves up as a moral judge of other people's behaviour is inviting a spotlight to shine on their own conduct more clearly, right? Whether that's social media influencers, um, Muslim imams, Christian pastors, politicians, um, ministers of justice, all of these people who are in positions where they judge the moral behaviour of other people are inviting uh, the spotlight to shine more brightly on themselves. And the reality is, is that we don't like hypocrisy, do we? None of us really like hypocrisy. Um, but here's the thing. Christians have a particular reputational problem with this because Christians have largely, in our country anyway, become known for being like the moral police. Now, that might not be true for you and me at a personal level, um, if you call yourself a Christian, but centuries 
of Christians have established the perception that Christians are the moral police. If you go back generations, you will see how the institutional church, um, the Catholic Church, the Church of England, other Presbyterian organisations, um, they have uh, spoken out about the moral depravity in society and indeed have had an immense amount of influence and leverage upon the laws of European nations um, that have outlawed certain behaviours that are considered to be morally um, depraved. Uh, and it's only now that some of those laws are being changed. Um, but even in the uh, contemporary times, we, have, we know of people who are prominent Christians who are really Christian moralists. So some of you may know the name Mary Whitehouse, who was a self-styled Christian moral crusader, who in the 1960s set out to stem the tide of permissive immorality in society. And uh, she was well known for this. And uh, she was known as a Christian, an evangelical Christian, who basically um, stood in judgment on other people that didn't come up to the Christian standards. Um, you may know of a woman called Margaret Court. She's a retired Australian tennis player, who you may not know this, but she won 24 Grand Slam single titles. She won 19 Grand Slam doubles titles and 21 Grand Slam mixed doubles titles. She has won more Grand Slam titles than any other player in history, more than Roger Federer. The uh, Australian equivalent of Wimbledon Centre Court is called the Margaret Court. Um, <laughs> she is so famous for her tennis and yet she is probably more infamous now for her outspoken moral views on homosexuality. She found God, she became a Christian pastor and she's been outspoken uh, as a Christian moralist um, trying to stem the tide uh, of depravity within Australian society uh, for several decades now. And she's more famous for that than she is for her tennis. The reality of it is, is that Christians have a reputation uh, for being moral police. And we kind of know that's true, right? Now I'm often in social settings where I don't know everyone and, and actually I really enjoy being with a group of people I don't know and I, because I'm naturally curious about people. I love to move around a crowd, a bit of a social butterfly, I love to get to know people, ask some questions about themselves. I'm just curious about you know, the different stories that people have, I love it. Um, but you know that during that conversation at some point, um, I know that that conversation is going to take a little bit of a turn um, because at some point they're going to ask me what I do. For a living so when that happens I tell them that I'm a church pastor and you know what I can visibly watch them kind of straighten up a little bit and I can almost see their mind churning like oh how many times did I swear whilst I was talking to this guy or how much beer have I consumed at this party um, I can see it in their minds like what do I need to take back because I've just realized that I'm talking to a pastor now, I usually give them an easy out because I tell them that I'm also a part-time physiotherapist and the relief kind of spreads across their face as they realize that they, there is something that they can relate to me about in terms of the work that I do. Um, and then, of course, I normally end up answering all their questions about their bad knee or their bad back or something like that. But I wonder if you've had that experience. Uh, have you had that experience where you're asked about your weekend activities while, on Monday whilst you're at the office and uh, you know you mentioned that you went to church on the Sunday morning and you just kind of, they don't really know how to answer that, they don't really know what to say. Or you're a student and you mention that you're off to Christian Union or um, you take your family uh, uh, to a Christian camp like New Wine um, and you end up trying to explain to the, to the person you're talking to that actually it's a, well, it's a bit like Glastonbury or Shambhala for Christians. 
um, without the booze or the recreational drugs or the partying all night long, which kind of reinforces the impression that you're kind of standing in judgment on those things, that you're a bit of a Christian moralist. You know, it's so complicated, isn't it? And so hard being misunderstood as a Christian. And the reality is, is that for many of us, it's easier just to keep that part of our life hidden. And Dan Karen, our, our friends and colleagues here at Seven, and Clara and I have some American friends. And they are Christian missionaries in the Middle East. They've simply moved there with the intention of sharing their faith in Jesus with Muslims. However, it's not a very politically correct thing to do to be a Christian missionary to Muslims in a country like Saudi Arabia, Jordan, or Lebanon, or, or Syria. And so they kind of go incognito. So they avoid telling people that they're actually Christian missionaries, even though the churches back home are supporting them financially as Christian missionaries. This bit of the agenda is kind of hidden a little bit. And of course, it's a little bit controversial. Some do and some don't. Um, but they have this kind of incomplete story. So they live in this nice middle-class um, suburb of a city like Amman or Beirut or Jeddah or somewhere like that. And they're living there. They don't have a, an ordinary job in, in that society. They're not working for, a, say, a foreign company or, or something. They may even set up their own non-profit charity, um, offering training and business advice and that sort of thing. But somehow they're getting money or they've got enough money to live in a really nice neighborhood in this country and live a nice middle-class lifestyle. But it's not entirely clear how that is happening and, and what the full story is. And, um, and so often, <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite amusing really, but often um, some of the sort of Arab Muslim friends, colleagues, neighbors of these people end up making one conclusion. And that conclusion is, is that these people are clearly working for the CIA. That there's something that hidden about their lives that they can't share. I think a lot of Christians feel like this. They realize that their faith in God is not integrated into their whole self. There's probably good reasons for that. Um, like we've already said, that uh, Christians are, are sometimes thought of as hypocrites, uh, as kind of moralists or moral police. And the question for those of us that call ourselves Christians is, do we want to be associated with that reputation? And, and if, we, if that's a particularly strong reputation, how do we avoid being tarred with the same brush? Well, I would like to suggest to you that God did not design you to be multiple persons in one. Um, in fact, to have such a segmented, compartmentalized life is not a sign of health. But how many of us, particularly Christians, actually do have multiple versions of ourselves? So like our church version, it's kind of uh, generally polite, um, kind, uh, patient, smiling. You may avoid swearing when you're with your Christian friends or you may kind of speak, speak well of other people in a way that you wouldn't always do if you weren't with them. This, this version, this Christian church version of yourself tends to linger beyond the end of a church service um, so that you may be a more considerate driver on your way home from church than you were on the way to church. Um, but by the time you get home, it's starting to dissipate somewhat. The home version of yourself may well be the most unvarnished version of yourself that other people see. Your household, your family, your housemates probably will see the best of you and yet they'll see the worst of you as well. Uh, you may at home shout and scream, wail and cry in a way that you wouldn't do in any other setting. You'll be um, your least guarded at home. 
And then maybe you have a private version of yourself. Uh, now that might be the version that no one else gets to see, only you and, and God. Um, and even, even you hide it from God, frankly. Uh, and this version has to do with all of your insecurities, your fears, your anxieties, your hopes, your disappointments, your hurts, your fantasies. And then there's a work version of you, maybe professional, maybe controlled by this need to perform, perhaps controlled by fear or, or ambition. And your work self is shaped largely by the culture of your work, work self. Um, so, so, so your workplace rather. So wherever you work, you know, you, you conform to that culture. Um, and you may actually act in ways that you would never act in any other setting. And then there's your social version of yourself. Now that might be liberated by some alcohol. Um, you may be more relaxed and joyful amongst your friends. You may laugh more deeply and more wholeheartedly. You may, um, you may be willing to do things uh, your, as a social self that your church self wouldn't really approve of. And, and, and so do you, do you know what I mean, right? That there's these versions of ourselves that we kind of, um, we kind of break down our lives into different segments and we compartmentalize ourselves to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and, but you know what? We, we can't do that without it affecting our emotional health. Um, to a greater or lesser extent, it will mess us up emotionally. You see, it's just impossible to hold all these different versions of ourselves in tension. Um, eventually, um, it will harm our mental health. Just ask anyone who knows deep down, or perhaps has, has, has moved through this process, but knew deep down once that they were gay. Um, but for any number of reasons, they've pretended that they're not. They've tried to suppress it. They've tried to keep that bit hidden from other people. They've tried to pretend to themselves that it's not real. But they've struggled with that and it's affected their mental health. And eventually when they've come out as gay and they've admitted to themselves and to other people that I am gay, that actually their mental health and their emotional health improves because they're not trying to deal with the tension of holding these kind of parts of their life that are really important hidden from themselves. So what I want to offer us today is um, a way to pull together all these different versions of ourselves. I want to challenge us to merge uh, those versions of ourselves as much as possible. You know, the, um, the creation myth written in Genesis is the source of many of our assumptions about what it means to be a healthy human being. Um, and in Genesis 3a, it says this, when they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, beautiful image, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden. Not such a beautiful image. They hid from God. God called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. They were hiding part of their life from God, principally because of shame and fear. And this story reminds us that we are healthy when our lives are fully integrated um, and when we, when we aren't hiding part of our lives because of shame and fear. So how do we integrate all the versions of ourselves. Well, there's three words I'm going to share with you that come from our emotionally focused course. The first word is awareness. First of all, we need to become aware of the differences between our various selves. Uh, and we need to understand why we show up differently in different settings. We need to ask ourselves some questions. Questions like this. What significant past experiences, both good and bad, still shape our present today? What meaning did I attach to those experiences? 
What vow did I make as a result of that experience in order to make myself feel secure and safe? And what impact did that vow have on me and on other people around me? Second, we need to communicate the, the awareness that we've developed to those around us. I call this authenticity. Simply becoming aware of what shapes us is not enough to integrate the different versions of ourselves. We need to honestly and vulnerably share ourselves, share those different versions with, uh, of ourselves with other people. Um, when we are willing uh, to share our real selves with other people, then we can stop hiding parts of our lives from one another. Third, awareness and authenticity are essential for us to be able to take appropriate action to integrate our versions of self. Often, Christians skip um, awareness and authenticity and jump straight to action. But all this does is create a Christian or church version of ourselves that is hard to sustain once the excitement of that initial spiritual encounter with Jesus has worn off. If you don't continue to have encounters with Jesus, if you don't continue to grow in your awareness and authenticity, and you just stick on action, if you just jump straight to action, all that's going to happen is you're going to become like the Pharisees. You're going to, you're going to become religious hypocrites. You're going to become Christian moralists. And frankly, that is exhausting and will one day cause you to abandon your faith in God because there'll be nothing there. I want to encourage you today to listen to the upcoming podcast that will accompany this box set series, uh, to sign up for the Emotionally Healthy course in September, um, or consider doing the upcoming Emotionally Focused Intensive in October. Start this journey to becoming more aware, more authentic um, about what, how the various versions of yourself integrate into one whole person. But today, can I ask you to do one simple thing? If you have a church version of yourself, if you have a version of yourself that you reserve simply for the Christians in your life, can I encourage you to do yourself a favor and ditch that self, ditch that church version and bring one of your other selves to church? Let's pray together.